Well, good morning once again to everybody. We are coming to the third and final installment in our little mini-sermon series on the subject of generosity, how God's grace makes us generous. And I want to talk today about how we grow in generosity. And my contention is that our growth in generosity comes mainly from a discovery of what is truly valuable to us. Our growth in generosity comes mainly from a discovery of what is truly valuable to us. So let's pray as we begin. Father, we pray that you would open these scriptures to us, that your spirit would speak words of truth and life in us, and that you would transform our lives so that we may become more generous as we more fully reflect your love in the world. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please excuse me if I'm coughing away. I've got a bit of a tickle in my throat. Uh, There's a wonderful song lyric uh, in one of uh, my favorite um, albums by the band Massive Attack, which says, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. You don't know what you've got till it's gone. It's quite a pertinent song lyric for some of us in these past few days. One of the best ways to discover what you really value in your life is to try and imagine your life, to try and imagine yourself without that thing, without the thing or the person. What would truly devastate you if it were to be gone, if it were to be lost to you? That's probably the thing that you value the most. For some, it might be uh, your reputation or your money. It might be your job or your status. For many of us, I'm sure it will be the relationships that are most valuable to us, our families, our friends, our children or our parents or our spouse, whoever it might be. There's all kinds of other things that we discover are valuable to us when we try to imagine life without them. We discover what we value when it's taken from us or the threat of it going becomes real. And that's what we see happening in the parable of the shrewd manager. So if you want to keep your Bibles open on Luke chapter 16, we're going to have a little look at uh, the parable of the shrewd manager. It's a peculiar parable. For on first glance, it seems in this parable as though God is the master and as though we are being invited to act dishonestly to gain his favor. But like many other parables in the Bible, it's, it's a parable of contrast. It's a parable of contrast which is saying, if the people of this world know how to make wise decisions about what is valuable, then how much more should we, as children of light, make right judgments about what we value. It's a parable of contrast saying, if this is how it is in the world and people know how to make canny uh, decisions about what's valuable, then you who have had Jesus revealed to you, you who are children of the light, should be able to make even better judgments about what is good and what is right. So what's going on? What are we supposed to understand from this parable? The manager uh, is a bit like a contemporary fund manager, the kind of person who might work down at Canary Wharf or in one of the firms in the city. He's not managing his own wealth, he's managing his master's wealth on behalf of his master. And he's hoping to make enough commissions and charges and perhaps bonuses uh, that he can accumulate wealth of his own. 
That's sort of what's going on. But he's overplayed his hand. He's not provided a return for his master because he's over-egged the commissions to the debtors. He's trying to make too much wealth for himself. Jews were prohibited from lending money at interest. It was called usury. And so they often got round this by lending commodities like oil or wheat and seeking a return on that investment. So the only way that the manager can gain wealth for himself is by creaming off a commission. So the master has entrusted some wealth in the form of oil and wheat to the manager and said, go and lend them and make a return for me and get yourself some commission as well. The manager gets wealth by creaming off commission, but it's a delicate balance because if you charge too much, the debtors won't be able to pay and you get no return. And like this manager, you could then be called in by your master and dismissed for not managing the wealth wisely. It's, it's all about risk. You know, people who work in financial services now are always talking about risk. How much uh, debt is a safe debt? What's the risk? What's the return? What's the balance? Now, this manager in the parable realizes what he truly values. He values his employment and his position with his master and also the good relationship he can make amongst the debtors. So when threatened with the possibility of losing his position, he thinks to himself, uh, I'm not strong enough to dig and go and work manually, and I'm too ashamed to beg, so I'd best do something to salvage this situation so that I don't lose my position with my master, and so that I have friends and relationships which are strong for myself if things do go wrong in the future. He goes and he sees the debtors and he tells them to reduce his, their debts. So he goes to the first, how much do you owe my master? Verse six, this is 800 gallons of olive oil. The manager tells him, take your bill, sit down and make it 400. Chop it in half, write off half the debt. Then the second, how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat. Take your bill and make it 800. Reduce it by 20%, knock off these commissions. What he's actually doing, you see, is writing off his own commissions, his own opportunities to accumulate wealth for himself. He's realizing that the relationships he has are more valuable than any wealth that he may acquire. He prefers to be in good relationship with his master and also to have the respect and the solidarity of his community. Jesus is saying, how much more should we who are Christians prefer and value our standing in our relationship with God, our master, and indeed our solidarity in the community of God's people. What is more valuable, the wealth you accumulate and acquire for yourself, or your relationship with God and with God's family, his people? This was hard to hear for the Pharisees who loved money, the Bible tells us, verse 14. For Jesus is instructing them in something quite fundamental. Love of money will get in the way of love of God. You cannot serve both God and mammon. Money is one of the great idols which will divert our gaze time and time again from our focus on the living God. We cannot serve two masters. And Jesus challenges us to be like this shrewd manager and to build our lives upon what is truly important, upon what is valued by God. He invites us to be transformed in our understanding of what is valuable, to prefer our relationship with God and our relationship with one another over what we may accumulate or acquire for ourselves. 
And it's this that Paul is talking about as well in 1 Corinthians 3, the first reading we heard, about attending carefully to how we build our lives. What kind of things do we use? What kind of materials do we use to build our lives? What's valuable? What do we incorporate into ourselves? Paul is responding to divisions in the church. Divisions in the church based on which leader different people are following or preferring. But for Paul, whether it's Apollos or him who is building is irrelevant, so long as our lives are built on the foundation that is Jesus Christ. Paul says it's God who brings growth after that. Many different people might contribute, but God brings the growth. I think we know that to be true in our own lives. As we have grown and matured into adult life and as we've grown and matured in our Christian faith, we will be able to point to many different people uh, for whom our relationship with them has been an influence in helping us to grow and mature in Christ, in our understanding of our faith and our capacity to live and to serve and to bear faithful witness to Christ. Our own relationships contribute enormously to our sense of what is important. We gain our sense of our values from the key relationships in our lives. Our parents, our families, our friends, those leaders who have inspired us, our spouse. I benefited from being raised by a father who was very loving and unfailingly generous. Last Sunday evening when I first uh, explored this subject with the Sanctuary Congregation, it was Father's Day and I was reflecting a little bit on what it meant on Father's Day to have benefited from having had a really wonderful, loving dad. I always had the sense that he worked hard to ensure that I could have the opportunities and experiences that he had not had himself. He was, and is, generous not just with money, but also with time, attention, and praise. What we have received affects what we will give. Jono and Rob in the past two weeks have drawn that out really clearly for us. What we have received will affect what we give. Our understanding, our appreciation of what we have received will transform us and change our perspective on what we give. Now, about a month or two before Sarah and I were due to be married, we had phone calls from both my parents and also from her parents in the same week. Uh, And I tell you this story just as an illustration of something that's happened to us, and I know that you'll have your own stories, and there are many stories of how uh, relationships and generous generosity affect us and transform and change us. Now, I was in debt with a car loan. I had taken out a car loan from the bank several years earlier, and uh, to avoid the interest, my parents had taken on the loan from me, and I was paying them back £100 per month. And they phoned to ask me to stop repaying, to cancel the standing order. They wrote off the outstanding debt. Sarah's parents phoned to ask what our outstanding credit card debt was for both of us. We both had some credit card debt. They then paid them off in full so that we could begin married life free of debt. That was an incredible gift. That was the generosity of our parents that enabled us to receive that wonderful gift of starting out married life debt-free. We were so grateful, and we remain grateful. And we have, consequently, looked for every opportunity we can find to give money away to others. We've been able to help pay down other people's debts, and we do so not because we're trying to gain a reputation for ourselves or any special favor. We do so simply because we have received and we want to give in the same manner that we have received. We've received generosity of others. We want to be people who give generously to others. Jesus says, freely you have received, freely give. 
It's another way of saying that we should give in the manner that we have received, freely and generously. We can be diverted from this generous giving by a faulty image of God. I've told you this story before, but I love it. Uh, uh, the story of uh, Salieri, the Viennese composer Antonio Salieri, which Miroslav Volf recounts in his book Free of Charge. And uh, the story is told in the movie and the play Amadeus. And Antonio Salieri, as a boy, kneels before a crucifix and tries to make a bargain with God. He says this, Lord, make me a great composer. Let me celebrate your glory through music and be celebrated myself. Make me famous throughout the world, dear God. Make me immortal. And what will God get in return? In return, Salieri says, I vow I will give you my chastity, my industry, my deepest humility every hour of my life. I will help my fellow man all I can. And Miroslav both comments this way. He says, he was offering God a deal. I'll sacrifice for you, and in return, you'll fulfill my desire for immortality and glory. Antonio Salieri had a contractual view of God. He believed that there was a deal to be done, an exchange to be made. When Salieri talked about giving generously to God, his chastity, his devotion, his humility, his service, he wasn't really giving it to God because he was expecting something from God in return. It wasn't a response to God's generosity, it was a bargaining chip, seeking to gain something for himself. Many of us actually live with this contractual view of God. It's the, it's the, it's the image of God which is made manifest by the, the sort of angry, judging father who will reward us for good behavior or punish us for bad behavior. It's the Father Christmas view of God. Naughty, naughty, nice, nice, naughty. You know, if you do the right thing, if you do good things, you'll get good things. And if you do bad things, you'll get bad things. But that's not how God has met us in Christ. That's not how he has demonstrated himself to be towards us. He's demonstrated us, demonstrated himself to be the one who towards us gives freely, generously, sacrificially, not because we have earned, merited, or deserved it, but because of his mercy. Titus uh, chapter 3 verse 5 says that Jesus came and saved us not because of what we had done, but because of his mercy. And this transforms our attitude to what we have and what we give. Later in the same book, Miroslav Volf writes this. Giving depends on the proper attitude towards three things things we possess, towards others, and towards ourselves. Take first the attitude towards goods. Our relation to things changes once we truly understand that everything has been given to us by God. If we believe that what we have is ours because we've earned it, we'll have a hard time giving. We'll expect everybody to earn their possessions just as we think we've earned ours. Earning is hard, life can be tough, but if you persevere, you'll succeed. We may give in individual cases because we may feel compassion for people stricken by misfortune, or we may want to be particularly nice to someone, but earning and possessing will be our way of living. Giving will be an occasional diversion. Then he says this, on the other hand, if we believe that God has given us everything, then giving will be our way of living. We'll still work to earn, because the gift of work is the primary means by which God gives what we have, but earning and possessing will become folded into giving. 
God gives us life, powers, and abilities, and so we earn and possess. We'll earn and possess so we can give, as when we share our food with the hungry. We'll give even while earning. Earning and possessing are not just a bridge between our desires and their satisfaction. They're a midpoint in the flow of gifts from God to us and through us to others. You see, it's a transformed view of how and why we give. Paul invites us in 1 Corinthians 3 to evaluate what we're building our lives around. Are we building our lives to acquire, to accumulate, to earn, and to possess? Or are we building our lives based on what we can give, how we can be generous, how we can show compassion, how we can love others? For our lives will be tested one day. One day we will stand before the judgment seat of God. Now, for those of us who are in Christ, this is good news. It will be a good day, but nonetheless, we will be measured. Did we feed the hungry? Matthew chapter 25. There will be a separation of the sheep and the goats. Did we feed the hungry? Did we give to the poor? Did we visit those imprisoned, both literally or metaphorically? Did we care for God's children? We will have to give an account and demonstrate whether we build our lives on generous compassion and love or on self-centered self-interest. Did we put the things that God values, mercy, love, hospitality, grace, peace, and generosity, did we put those things at the center of building our lives, or did we build walls around our hearts so as to shut out the sight of those in need? It's a question to ask ourselves even now. Not because we have a fear of a ferocious God. We meet God in Christ who comes and gives himself sacrificially for us, who takes upon him all the sins of the world so that we may be free to repent and to be forgiven, to receive the forgiveness he gives, that we may be changed and transformed. But still, he calls us to obedience and to faithfulness. Test our lives. Examine yourself. Ask the Spirit of God to bring you the freedom that makes you generous. Do we allow the Spirit of God to show us how much we have received from the Lord's hand and from the hands of others that we might hold loosely all that we have and be willing to give and to share? All that we've been exploring in this season on generosity is about our attitude to that which we have, that which is under our care and our stewardship. And that's about our money, it's about finances, it's about what is in your bank account or in your wallet right now. But it's also about your attitudes and your approaches to other people in the world around you. Do you have enough compassion to be generous with others? Do you have the generosity that enables you to comfort one another? Are you generous in your attitudes and your approaches towards other people? And with that in mind, I want to say a few words about the referendum this week, because it would be peculiar to ignore this seismic political shift in our nation's life. The result of the referendum has exposed great divisions in our society, a very, very deeply and profoundly divided society. 
And in the fragile political unity that we've experienced with our geographical neighbors over the past decades, we're seeing a new rift exposed. Now, I'm going to resist the temptation to speak apocalyptically about the future. Christ is enough, and we do trust in the all-sufficient providential care of God. But I do want to urge us to pray for peace and for the European Union to hold firm against further disintegration. And the reason I think this is important is that the European Union was founded as a political and an economic uh, sort of response to two great wars that ravaged Europe in the 20th century. Let's not believe that we are immune to further violence. History teaches us that time and time again, divisions between people, culturally, societally, politically, economically, very often are settled on the battlefield with the sword or the gun. We must, must pray for peace. But what I really want to say about the referendum result is this in relation to what we've been discussing today in the last couple of weeks. Let's pray that our country and our society would become more generous as a result of this referendum. Let's lobby our political leaders, whoever they may be over the next few months, to replace the European Union subsidies, which are supporting agriculture, the arts, science and housing, with national investment. Let's all pay some more tax, everybody, corporations and individuals, so that we can be more generous with what we have. Let's not hold on too tightly to what we're trying to accumulate and acquire for ourselves. Let's have loose hands willing to give and to share to those who need. Let's see us campaigning to build more genuinely affordable homes, by which I mean not £450,000 starter homes. And not just to house our children, but also so that we can offer generous hospitality to those who flee violence and persecution in other parts of the world. Let's resist fear of the other, whoever the other might be to you. That might be a Syrian refugee or an Eastern European uh, plumber. That other might be someone who voted leave. Let's be gracious in our judgments, let's be generous in our listening, but steadfast in demonstrating in our lives and our words the kind of generosity that we have received from God in Christ. If we're going to form a new political entity, if uh, the United Kingdom, whether it remains united or it breaks up into different constituent parts, let's take responsibility for building a new society. A new society in which that ultimate union, political, ecclesial, financial, societal, relational union, is based upon our union with God in Christ. We're going to celebrate Holy Communion in a little while, and that reminds us of the most powerful union in all creation, the covenant purposes of God for the world. Imagine the world built upon those things which God values. Imagine what the world could be. Imagine the kind of new creation that God has purposed for us. A place of joy, beauty, art, relationship, food, hospitality, love, freedom. Imagine a world not of walls and of barriers, but of bridges and open doors. Imagine a world that is resplendent with generous love, 
the kind of love that God has shown in Christ for you and for me. And then let this new society, this new world, be built in our midst, built in our hearts, established in our lives, so that when one day it is tested with fire, the gold will endure, the good things will endure, the things which God has given and purpose for us would endure. We cannot do this alone. We need the Spirit of God to break our walls down and to establish the kingdom of Christ in our midst. Would you stand as we pray? Jesus, it's hard for us to imagine the next few weeks and the next few months in our nation and across uh, continental Europe. All we see is enmity, division and recrimination. are our healer. You are the one who breaks down walls and barriers. You make divided people one in your kingdom. And so Lord, we pray that just as we have received freely from your hand, just as you have been generous with us, you would make us generous with others. Protect us, Lord, from retreating into our own little ghettos. Protect us from narrow self-interest and make us generous. Lord, give us a new political vision for our nation and we pray that you would raise up among us uh, leaders and champions who will demonstrate uh, a new world order who will be people after your own heart full of compassion grace love and of peace spirit of God come we pray come and fill us and even as we pray for our nation and for Europe and for the world Let's use this song as our prayer.